Uh, so glad to see you here today. Glad that you came out and braved the rain uh, this morning and, and came in to join us. To all of you who are uh, watching us online, we're grateful that you are here with us also. Um, I'm going to state some pretty obvious things here for you, but just humor me. Uh, we live in a world that has rules, correct? Yes, there are rules, and we are all subject to these rules in one way or another. Now, some of the rules that we are subject to are what we might call the laws of nature. They involve things such as what goes up must come down. And why is that so? Because of gravity, right? Now, most of the laws of nature, uh, we don't have any choice as to whether we follow these laws or not, correct? I, I would love to fly, and yet, despite all of my desires to fly, I cannot beat the law of gravity. Uh, we have other rules that are designed to help us live in community with one another. For example, one of the laws that is, or rules that is common across you know, the entire world is that we should not murder another person. And that one's pretty straightforward. It's not difficult to understand why that rule is in place, why we should not take the life of someone else. But there are other rules, even laws, that um, are a little bit more difficult to understand, and we might even call them odd. For example, in Arkansas, it's illegal to sound your horn at any place where cold drinks or sandwiches are served after 9 p.m., now, you might ask why. I will give a shiny thumbs up to whoever can figure it out. Where would you honk where, where sandwiches and cold beverages are found? At a drive-thru in a neighborhood, right? So a, a restaurant that's in a neighborhood. We can maybe figure that out, but here's a few other ones. In Delaware, it's against the law for a pawnbroker to accept an artificial limb or wheelchair as payment. I don't think I want to know why that one uh, was necessary. In Louisiana, it's illegal for a woman to drive a car without her husband waving a flag in front of it beforehand. Now, not all of these may still be in place, to be fair. But some of them lasted a long time. Uh, Susie, this one's for you. In Florida, it's actually illegal to sing when you're in your swimsuits. So... <laughs> There's also a law against singing along to the radio while walking by yourself, because everyone knows that is the behavior of a psychopath, so, <laughs> so don't do those things. In Alabama, Kentucky, and Georgia, it's against the law to walk down the street with an ice cream cone in your back pocket. I have so many questions about this one. Number one, who thought that was a good idea in the first place? And number two, who was so offended by that that they actually pushed a law through to keep it from happening? There's a lot of backstory that I need here. Uh, here is maybe one of the most obscure ones, however. In Arizona, it was made a law that you can't have a donkey sleeping in your bathtub after 7 p.m. <laughs> in this one specific town. So obviously that has to come from one specific case, right? So this law was passed in 1924 after an Arizonian merchant's bathtub with its donkey inside, his donkey inside was washed into a valley after a dam broke. 
carrying his donkey into troubled waters. Hundreds of people were involved in saving the sleepy, soggy donkey. I did not write that, by the way. So the law was signed into action to prevent endangering future bathtubs using donkeys and to save everyone a bunch of time and efforts. And lastly, before we get too judgy about everyone else, here in California at one time, and I'm not sure if this is still true, it was illegal to eat a frog if it died in a frog jumping competition. Um, if one of the frogs met its demise at any point in the competition, its body, and this was in the law, must be destroyed as soon as possible and may not be eaten or otherwise used for any other purpose. Friends, we must respect our frog athletes. They give it their all. We need to keep that in mind. Now, again, some of these laws, like the laws of nature, uh, we cannot deny. And even some of our regular laws, like do not murder and some of these other things, you know, um, um, we're going to follow those too. But while we can't deny the laws of nature, other sort of societal laws, we have a choice to whether we follow them or not. And the societal laws are designed to help us live in community with one another. Most of the laws that we have are probably here because why? Someone did something that violated someone else's sense of rights, and therefore these laws exist. It's one of the reasons why McDonald's coffee cups has hot <laughs> written on it, right? Because someone burned themselves with hot coffee and then sued McDonald's because the coffee was too hot. So McDonald's had to put a, a warning on their hot coffee cups, warning hot, so that people would not, I don't know, wash their face with it or other sorts of things. Um, so we have some choices there about what we'll do, but our, our decision to abide by these societal laws is a reflection of whether or not we are choosing to live within that society, correct? Society says, you can't do this, it's okay to do that, you can't do this, and on and on and so forth. And we have a choice. We can live by those rules or those laws, and by doing so, we are a part of society. Or we can say, I don't want to follow those things. And the action of not following those rules or laws means what? We are choosing to live outside of the rules and laws that society has designated for us. Now, when we make this choice by, let's say, breaking a law, what happens? If you're caught, <laughs> there are consequences for living in a way other than uh, how the world around us says that we can live. But there are other rules still. We have laws of nature, we have laws of society, and then we have what I'm going to call the values of the culture that we live in. Are they rules? I would argue yes. They are rules and things that people are expected to follow. And every society or culture has a set of values that people are expected to live by. And the culture we live in values things, and we as participants in that culture are expected to value those same things. We are expected to build what the culture expects us to build. These are the values, live by these values. And it's not hard to identify what those values are in our society. Number one, and not in any specific order, but number one, personal freedoms. 
is a very high value of our culture, right? And we get especially mad when someone infringes on our personal freedoms. However, if we impinge on someone else's personal freedoms, well, there was a good reason for it, <laughs> right? We laugh, but it's not so funny when it actually plays out. Another value, success, wealth, influence, power. That is what it means to be a contributing, healthy part of this society, which leads to probably the highest value within our culture, which is the building of our own kingdoms, um, which shows that when we build our own kingdom, have our own homes and families and businesses and retirements and wealth, when we have all these things, it shows that the cultural system we live in is actually working, that this is the epitome of what we should and can be. Now, looking at these few things, we don't really have to squint to see the ways that we have adopted in one way or another these values. And maybe you're even convicted a little bit by how these values, which we accept as part of the norm, may not be all that great. Because when I look at personal freedoms and success and wealth and building my kingdom, I see those things and they are all about whom? Yeah, well, me. I was thinking me, but you know, you can say you, right? They are all about us. They are about what I accomplish and what I do. Now, the problem with these values is not that they are inherently wrong or bad. That by saying, I want to be successful, that that is a negative thing. But the problem is that these values, the values of this place that we live in, are not the same values of Jesus. They simply aren't. So before we go any further with this discussion this morning, we need to recognize that it is incredibly difficult. It is incredibly difficult to shed the ways of this world and live under different rules, laws, or values. And any violation of the norms are always met with some sort of backlash or even punishment in some cases. Now, it's not so easy, or not so hard, I should say, when we look at some of them. Like, we understand that we shouldn't become murderers. And I mean, heaven forbid we walk around with an ice cream cone in our back pocket. We're civilized people here. But when we start talking about living counter to the values of our society, it can be difficult for us to understand how to even conceptualize that, let alone live it out. The values of our society are so ingrained in who we are, we al almost can't understand how to live apart from those things. And so we hear terms like, give everything to Jesus, submit to him, live your life for God, and immediately we start wondering how we can do that while living within our societal norms. How does me having a bigger house, how does me having a bigger house show that I am really following Jesus? How does me having, me personally, having all the pairs of shoes that I have, how does that prove 
that I am a follower of Jesus. And the further and further we run down this road, the more we are going to be convicted that we have adopted Christianity to our society and not changed our society in the way that it matches who Jesus is. And when we live counter to the values of our society, what does society think about us? Well, number one, I mean, they're ready to tell us how we're doing it wrong, right? But in some ways, that's because they see how we're not doing it. Now, the Corinthian church understood the world to be a certain way. There were rules, and those rules were established, just like for us, by the culture in which they lived. And Corinth was a prosperous town where people got really rich through trade. People indulged in the things they wanted to, living the best life they could. Wealth, power, influence, this was the way of the Corinthian life. And either you were on top of that system— benefiting from all that it had to offer or you were on the bottom supporting that system, working your life away to give wealth to others. And within that city, if you could have that great life, then you were to go and get it. Do whatever was possible in order to have the ideal life. But the problem is the Corinthian Christians gave their life to Jesus. So they're still living in this place that has all of these rules and values. But they have now said, we believe in Jesus and we are going to live our lives for him. And the issue was that the Corinthian church, their call to live like Christ was not a little bit different than the life they were living. It was really, really different really different. Life in Jesus broke all of the accepted rules and values and called those, just as it does today, called those who followed him to live in such a way that the society, the world, the culture around them would look at them and they would say, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? You don't have to do that. You don't have to act that way. You don't have to give that up. You don't have to support that person. It's about you. But Jesus says, no, it's not. It's not just about you. So there is one more fundamental rule that we must recognize as overwhelmingly undeniable. You do not live in the world you lived in before you met Jesus. You do not. Jesus fundamentally changes the world, and he fundamentally changes who you are, so that, the scriptures tell us, you are not the same. You are not slightly altered. You know? You're not you in new clothes. You are changed. You are changed. Living the different life through Jesus is not easy, though, because along the road to living like him, we are called to give up our sense 
of wisdom, of what is and what isn't, of what can and can't, what should be and what shouldn't be. We are called to abandon those things and to think differently. And in thinking differently, we become someone different. Let's, let's take a look at how this is happening. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> then we have to remember that in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, in the first part of 2, Paul has already established the content of what is going on in some of the issues here, and it was a fight over wisdom, human wisdom versus God's wisdom. And Paul has established that the very heart of this issue comes down to the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the great wisdom of God, which humanity looks at and thinks is foolish. The actions of someone who is incredibly unwise. And but Paul says this is what wisdom is all about. The cross is the heart of the message of God's wisdom. Whatever the world wants to call it, it is the heart of God's wisdom. Why is it the heart of God's wisdom, and why is it so in opposition to what the world calls wisdom? Why does the world have such a hard time accepting it as wisdom? Well, what does the cross do? The cross breaks all the rules. It breaks all the laws. It kicks away all of the values of this world. So look, of course the world doesn't understand it. It's written in another language, a language they're not willing to learn and are not interested in finding out about. Because the cross is not about self-benefit, is it about self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice to an unreasonable degree. It thumbs its nose at the laws of nature to where an implement of death becomes the vehicle that ushers in eternal life. The cross does not follow the rules. It rewrites the rules. The rules that we have created. The, worlds that reflect, the rules that reflect the world we live in. So when we're reading through chapter 2, there's a bit of an ironic tone here to Paul's words as he talks about what he's sort of poking fun at back in the first chapter, this secret wisdom. How do you get this secret wisdom that is so hard to come by? But his point comes through clearly. There is an earthly wisdom that calls itself wise, but it is a wisdom that exists under restrictions. Have you ever thought about that before? Our wisdom has rules that we think cannot be broken. And therefore, however wise or mature we may get, our wisdom is always going to hit a boundary that cannot be broken. And so Paul, throughout this, talks about this earthly wisdom which calls itself wise. But he uses several air quotes in here. Oh, you're wise. Oh, you're mature. You think you know what's going on. 
And Paul is contrasting that against a wisdom of God, which is, in fact, wise, because it is a wisdom without limitation that, that shatters the rules and the boundaries, but asks us to trust it, even though we can't understand it. Even though, even though we may never be able to wrap our minds around what it is. And you know, this throws into sharp contrast for me the times where we ask God to explain himself to us. And God invites us to do this, first off. But God, we look at him sometimes as if he has to justify to us what he's doing or how it was done. And when we are doing that, we are asking God to live like someone who is limited in their wisdom, where things have to make sense in this one particular way. And God's wisdom has no boundaries. And I'm sorry that our brains do, but it's a choice between continuing to live under limitation or allowing that there is a God who is more capable than you can even comprehend. So whose wisdom are you going to follow? The one that's going to hit a wall or the one that doesn't even see the wall. So here's the first point that Paul wants to make here in chapter 2. We're going to start in verses 6 through 10. And his main point here is, look, we play by a different set of rules. And you cannot live as a follower of Christ if you continue to live by the rules and values of Corinth. And so here's what he says. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Air quotes but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Now, Paul is not trying to reinforce that there is some way for the mature on this world to become wise. Even those who follow Jesus, their wisdom is also going to reach a limit and a breaking point. And he makes no qualms, has no qualms about just flat out saying the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age, the values of this time, everything that the world holds up is going to come to what? Nothing. Nothing. Because there's nothing within human wisdom that transcends. That is bigger than the moment and the time it's living in. So this is not, this discussion is not about how wise we can be through Jesus. That's not what it's about. Instead, it's about how wise God actually is and how that stands in contrast to us. And as a follower of Jesus, one who stands up and says, my life is about him, you declare that the real power in this world is not something that we can attain. Instead, it is the wisdom of God. 
God is the power of this world. And again, the wisdom of God is personified in what? The cross. That God gave up his son because he loved those who hated him so that those people, his enemies, could have eternal life with him. That's a confusing statement, isn't it? And we could say that a lot of different ways, couldn't we? And no matter how many times you say it, no matter how many different ways you try to word it, it is still not going to make sense if you value the wisdom of this place. It will always sound off. It will always sound weird. But this is the wisdom of God. That he saw fit to save those he loved, no matter who they were or what they had done or how they had offended him. And he made that happen by sacrificing one of the deepest, greatest gifts that he had. That those people who had rejected him and in fact killed his son might be able to live with him. Does it make sense? Not to us. But that is the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of God to see through all of the things we would get caught up in in there. Oh, you hate me. Fine. Go ahead and hate me. I hope you like it hot. You know what I mean? We could respond to anything within those statements and find a reason to not do what God did. But God, thank heavens, is more wise than we are and values things that we don't value and says, even though it is going to cost me, even though it is going to cost me my son, I will give it for you. So the world with its wisdom, though it, it's, it's, this is rejecting God and the wisdom of God, like this is not a new practice. And, and yes, the world has rejected the cross because, again, in its mind it doesn't make sense, but this rejection of God and what God thinks should happen is a long-held practice. Isaiah spoke about it in Isaiah chapter 64 where he says, since ancient times, and Paul quotes this here, since ancient times no one has heard, no ear is perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Do you see what he's saying there? There is no God like you. No one has seen anyone. No one has heard of anyone like you. Because that God doesn't exist. There is no one like you. And it is that otherness of God, the way he acts like no God or person ever would, that makes him so difficult to understand for us who want to cling to the way things are. To understand and to put God into the context of this place that we live. So we need to, again, just understand what Paul is saying. And this is important for us to accept on behalf of ourselves and the Corinthian church, okay? It is difficult to accept the wisdom of God. It is. Because accepting the wisdom of God requires an ongoing intentional practice of putting your own sense of what is and isn't aside. 
in any time, any example, any application. Putting your own, this is how it should be, aside. And allowing, being gracious to God, that perhaps his idea is better than what ours is. We want to figure out God. We want to explain him. But any of those attempts are just nothing more than attempts for us to control him, to reduce him. So, so what do we do? Then, right? It's like, okay, awesome. I feel really pumped up. Let's go get him, team. Right? How do we do this? Well, we're asking the wrong question when we say, how do we do this? Because what have we already done? We've already turned it back to us. And we are already looking at the limitations and the difficulties of what it is. So there's good news for you. You don't have to do this on your own. Through the intervention of the Spirit of God, you, too, can become someone different. You, too, can think differently, act differently, live differently. Because God is living where? Inside of you. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand, I love this, what God has freely given us. Two things I just want to point out right off the bat. Have you ever had a discussion with someone who argued with you about how you felt about something? You know what I'm saying? It's a frustrating experience, isn't it? Because they can say whatever they want, and what is your rebuttal every time? great, I still feel this way. And you can't tell me how I feel about this thing. This is how I feel. And I have some people in my life that will continue to argue with me that that's not exactly how I feel. We, don't we do that to God all the time? I mean, seriously, like, isn't part of what Paul is describing is that exercise? Of, of, of trying to tell God, no, this is how you really think, this is how you really feel, this is what you really value. The other thing I love is that last line, of course. We have received, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is how complicated we make things. That God has to send his spirit to us so that we will accept something he is simply giving to us. The free gift, so that we can take it and live with this free gift. We are such boneheads sometimes. But this statement makes sense to us, even in our own minds, because God, God's wisdom is difficult for us to understand because, as we've said, our own humanity gets in the way. But the beauty of it is that God does not leave us to figure out figure this out on our own. And the thing is, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Because did God leave us to figure out our own salvation? No. 
He did it for us. When we reached the limit of our capabilities and abilities to become what he hoped we would be, he changed the situation for us so that we could have the gift he wanted to give us. So why would we think that he's going to leave us alone to figure out how to be more like Jesus? That's not who he is. And when has he ever shown himself to be that kind of God? The Spirit of God knows God. It knows the deep things of God. What does that mean? It knows the things about God you never will. It knows the things about God you never will. Why? Well, <laughs> it, it's his spirit. Okay? And, and God sent the spirit to us to help us understand these deep things of God that are beyond our reach. So what is he saying when he says this? He says that the Spirit helps us to put aside our own sense of what is so that we can begin to see what it is that God sees when he looks at the same things. We look at things one way as people. And granted, we may not have different opinions about those things, but we look at them one way, with human eyes. And what the Spirit does is helps us to put aside our human eyes and understand that there is more to it than we are seeing. And that even the limitations we might put on it go away when we look as God looks at these things. The Spirit may be the most criminally overlooked and undervalued part of our understanding of who God is. Read what Jesus had to say about the Spirit in the book of John. Listen to what Paul is saying here. The Spirit is the necessary part, the key to you living like Jesus. It's not you being better than the person next to you. It's not you being more successful than the person across the room. You being more like Jesus, does it require commitment? Yes. Does it require sacrifice? Yes. Does it require you to make different choices? Yes. But it is the Spirit that helps you to do that if you have a willing heart. Because living this other way is hard, it is not easy. It is not easy. To help us appreciate this point, how far would we get in understanding God without his spirit? Right? The church in Corinth is a great reminder to us that we would not get very far. Before what is Jesus becomes simply an adapted Santa Rosa. You know what I'm saying? Instead of the body of Christ living in this place as God desires for them to live. It is the Spirit who makes us who we are and empowers us to live a different life. So let's look at these last verses here. Verses 13 through 16. 
This is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, this is pretty magical, friends. What does the Spirit do for us? It gives us a vocabulary with which to understand God. How do you describe the indescribable? That's a trick question, by the way. (laughs) You can't because it's indescribable, right? How do you explain a God whose wisdom is so far beyond ours, we think it's stupid? How how do you do that? We could go on and on about this, by the way. But we're going to come to the same conclusion. We don't have the words. We don't don't have the words to, to... not only understand in our own minds, but to try to explain it to someone else who God is. We don't have the words. But the Spirit gives us the words. That doesn't make us more eloquent. I want to be clear about that necessarily. It doesn't necessarily make us more eloquent as if all of a sudden we can explain everything about God. That's not the case. But think about this. To someone who does not know Jesus, the idea of God being indescribable is kind of dumb. And to those that do know Jesus, the thought of of God being indescribable is imperative to who God is. The God who is beyond, right? Do I have words to describe that? No, I still don't. But do I understand the word differently? Yes, I do. He gives us a a vocabulary, and then uh, the Spirit explains spiritual realities to us. It empowers us to see with different eyes than our own. It helps us to see the world differently. It is the bridge between our limited point of view and the limitless wisdom of God. So I want you to know, you cannot begin to live a different life without help from the Spirit. And the reason why is that your humanity will keep getting in the way. Your brain will keep asking questions that you can't answer. And the frustration from your lack of answers is going to make you ask questions that, again, there may not be answers to. You see what I'm saying? And it just keeps on rolling down the hill. And look, asking questions is great. That's that's not the point that I'm that I'm making, but we won't understand with our lack of understanding. <laughs> and we will find ourselves settling into the ways of what we see throughout the Bible, the people who just don't get it. Those who call themselves the people of God. But Paul gives us this encouragement. Look, the Spirit is helping you 
The Spirit knows God better than anyone. And because the Spirit is living inside you and knows God better than anyone and is helping you along, you have the mind of Christ. You are capable of seeing the world differently. You are. Which takes us back around, if we have the mind of Christ, takes us back around to what? This guy right here. Takes us back to the cross and the great mystery of the God who loves us. Here's what I want you, in part, to take away today. Number one, the world is not going to help you understand God. It will try to explain God to you up and down, but it is not going to help you understand him. And if you stick to the rules and values of this place, two things will inevitably be true. You will not think like Jesus does, and you will not act as Jesus does. And because of that, you will not represent Jesus in this place. You will be someone who says they are living for Jesus while living just like everyone else. The world does not value what Jesus values. And it's not going to do a thing to help you live like him. So how do you start? Let me just make two suggestions. Number one, marvel at the cross and the redemption that God has given, not just to you, but to the world. Wonder <laughs> at how it remarkably, wonderfully, incredibly doesn't make sense. And thank God that he does not treat us like we would treat one another. And number two, put your own, be willing. This is a humbling experience, you know, a good one, but it's still humbling. Ask God to help you put your own wisdom aside and seek the guidance of the Spirit. Admit that the way we do things and the way we have always done things leads us to the same places. And we want to live the life of a God who has no limits with him. We want to live with him in that. What does this look like? Well, as we finish this and go into communion this morning, I'm going to read to you from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. And if we are out of our minds, as some say, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, well, that's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the church said, Amen. as we take communion, we are celebrating this truth. That once we saw Jesus in a certain way, but we see him so no longer. Because the love of God has overwhelmed us. The Spirit of God has helped us to understand what is beyond difficult to comprehend. And we gladly, gladly are crazy in the world's point of view. Some of us more than others. We are crazy in the world's point of view. But we do it because what God has done for us makes it so we can't be any other way. And look, I'll try to be normal for you. But I am living under a different reality. And that, this incredible love of God in Jesus, is what makes me who I am, and is what defines how I think, how I move, what I value.
May God help us to continue to seek him in that way that Paul was describing.